You're listening to the sermon audio from Redemption Church. Redemption Church exists to exalt Christ, edify the saints, and evangelize the world for the glory of God. For more information on Redemption Church, just go to redemption.church. First Samuel chapter 2 and chapter 3 is where we will be this morning. But it seems like... Functionally, every other week, we hear of another leadership scandal. A politician who's involved in a cover-up, an angry boss who berates his employees, a leader who uses his position to bully in order to get his way. And sadly, such leadership failures and scandals have become commonplace in Jesus' church. Christianity Today published its top 20 stories of 2022. And when you look through those headlines, you see story after story of pastoral abuses and moral failures. Tragically, it seems like leadership corruption seems so regular in the church today that we're sort of becoming numb to it. The shock is becoming less sharp The increasing frequency of all these failures have have lessened the shock and we've become a bit cynical about leaders in the first place. And we sadly just expect that it's only a matter of time before yet another moral failure is announced. You see, the pain of that failure, of leaders failing, is sadly amplified when the leaders surrounding the fallen leader handle that failure with clumsiness. And with disregard, when we brush sin under the rug, when we quickly keep it confidential and we quickly reinstate pastors after significant moral failures, or when we try to suppress the voices of those calling out for justice, our leadership cynicism starts to sink into despair. And we've seen this pain even in recent years in our own Southern Baptist Convention of Churches. By God's grace, there are many faithful pastors and leaders who go unnoticed by the world. They're not in the headlines. Godliness and a quiet life tend to go hand in hand together. But in our insatiable appetite that we all have for scandal, indeed, dare I say, gossip, moral failures tend to get amplified in our conversations, causing us to forget the many faithful leaders that the Lord has indeed provided his church. But the leadership crisis that we find ourselves in the church today still leaves a major question, a crucial question that perhaps you've asked, and I know I've asked, what do we do with corrupted leaders? Or better yet, perhaps the most important question is what will God do with corrupted leaders? That's the question we ask ourselves today as we continue our study of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel introduced us to a barren woman named Hannah who went to the tabernacle and who laid out her soul before the Lord in prayer. And as she prayed, the the priest Eli confronts her, you might remember, and he calls and he suspects that she might be a worthless woman or to put literally a woman of Belial. Belial means worthless. It means wickedness. It means rebellion. It eventually becomes a term associated with the prince of evil, 
Satan himself. Paul uses the word in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15. What accord has Christ with Belial? The term refers to one of extreme wickedness who aligns themselves not with the Lord, but with the serpent, the evil one. The children of Belial are those who do not know the Lord. So while Hannah was mistaken by Eli, the priest, as a woman of Belial, Eli's sons are indeed men of Belial. They're worthless. Eli's son, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. They were briefly mentioned last week in 1 Samuel 1.3, but now it's time to get to know these worthless men, these men of Belial. Let's start reading in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. The description of Hophni and Phinehas before this sobering summary of their ministry, we see that they are indeed worthless men, men of Belial, men who did not know the Lord. And that's immediately frightening, isn't it? Terrifying about the possibility that those who are responsible for leading God's people do not know the Lord themselves. And we see these two men, they have a blatant disregard for God's commands. And they go about their priestly work, not to honor the Lord, not to serve his people, but they go about the work for their own advantage. Paul warns the church of such false teachers like this, who Paul says can usually be identified by their greed and their sensuality. So it is with Hophni and Phinehas, who are greedy and lustful men who use their position of authority not to serve God's people, but to oppress them and indeed abuse them. A priest in Israel had the responsibility of working at the tabernacle, at the temple, and they represented God's people in worship. They were responsible for administrating the sacrificial system by which God's people's sins could be atoned for. But in the description, we hear in our text this callous indifference to God. The sins of these two brothers are threefold in the text listed. First, we see they stole from Israel. They stole from Israel. They stole from the people. In the law of God, the priests are to be given a portion of the sacrifice for food. It's part of God's way of providing for the priests. But after the Lord is given the first portion, the fatty portion, the priest was to receive his assigned portion. 
And then the family would gather, be given whatever's left of the sacrifice, and, and they would enjoy it, and they would feast in thanksgiving for the Lord's provision and feast in celebration to the Lord, eating the remaining meat. What does our text say the priest did? After all that had taken place, celebrate, family celebrating, giving thanks to the Lord, worshiping, having a good meal together, here comes one of Eli's son, called a priest servant in the text. And one of these sons would come up and he would approach the family with this giant skewer in his hand. And he would walk up to them, probably saying very little. And then he would take that fork and he would thrust it into the pot, aiming for the largest possible piece of meat that he could find. And then he would pull the fork out and then he'd walk away. And they did this, not just every now and then, but the text says every Israelite that came to Shiloh saw this sort of behavior. This wasn't an anomaly. This was a, the normal pattern of what they did. Their greed and their gluttony led to blatant priest-sanctioned robbery from Israel. But the second sin and the greater offense, even than that, was not only did they steal from Israel, they stole from the Lord. They stole from the Lord. In the sacrificial system, it's very clear in the Levitical law, the fat belongs to the Lord. The fat belongs to the Lord. The Lord received the fatty portions. And then after the Lord received his portion first, then the priest was allowed to take his assigned share, which was limited. But here we see that these brothers shockingly reverse the order. They took their cut first, the raw meat. Then the Lord got their sloppy leftovers. We can imagine the shock and the horror played out in the text here of what it must have been like for an Israelite worshiper to come to the tabernacle with their sacrifice to honor the Lord and imagine the conversation that happened with one of Eli's sons. One of Eli's sons would welcome the worshiper. Welcome to the tabernacle. Thanks for making the trip to Shiloh. Thanks for bringing your sacrifice today. By the way, just so you know, there's sort of a new policy. There's a new way of doing things here. Just a, just a small minor adjustment. We, we only accept raw meat. So if, if you want to offer your sacrifice to God, just cut off the best portion of the meat for us, and then we'll offer your sacrifice to God. And we're told in the text that the worshipers would protest, wouldn't they? They, they brought the sacrifice for the Lord, and then the worshiper would respond trying to protest. Well, well thank you, Mr. Priest. I know that you're the expert on this, right? You're the, you're the one who studies the law. I'm not the expert. I get that. But I'm pretty sure aren't we supposed to give the first portion and the fatty portion to the Lord? Isn't that what the law says? If you want more meat from me, that, that's fine. I'll give it to you, I guess. But, but let's honor the Lord. Let me give him the first choice of this sacrifice as he has commanded us. And then the priests were told in the text, Hophni and Phinehas, they would get mean. They would get aggressive. It would get domineering and bullying, and they would say, no, I'm the priest. I know what to do. What I say goes. You either do as I say, or I'm going to take the meat by force. The priest is not only stealing from God at that point, but he's forcing God's people to participate in their corrupted worship. For Israel, there was no other option to go to offer your sacrifices. You couldn't hop to another tabernacle down the street and make your offerings. 
that wasn't an option. There was only one. There was only one priesthood. And the leader of the tabernacle, these priests are not only blatantly disobeying God's word, but they're forcing you to do the same through their bullying and intimidation. These brothers are making an utter mockery of the tabernacle and its sacrificial system. Verse 17 gives us a sobering summary of these brothers. Thus, the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. There's one final sins of Eli's sons that's mentioned in verse 22. And we're told that these worthless brothers would lay with women serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. We read in Exodus chapter 38, verse 8, that that women were dedicated for the purpose of serving and helping to administrate the tabernacle. But these two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, rather than leading and protecting and caring and honoring these women, the sons treat them as temple prostitutes for their own pleasure. Sadly, we have heard reports of such men of Belial like Hophni and Phinehas serving as leaders in the church. They steal and profit off of God's people. They have a blatant disregard for God's word and they do things their way. We know better. They make a mockery of God in their so-called worship and they bully others with intimidations and threats to force their way. And they have no concern whatsoever for those under their care, but instead oppress them, abuse them, molest them, rape them. What wicked and worthless leaders. And what will the Lord do? What will the Lord do with such heinous corruption in Israel? What will he do with such heinous corruption in the church today? Who will deal with Israel's leadership failure and crisis? You see, the sons of Eli may not know the Lord, but guess who knows them? The Lord. He sees the evil that they are doing. And the Lord's judgment will soon come. But the Lord in the process is preparing for Israel a faithful leader to replace the wicked ones. The the narrator in our text today, he interlocks the fall of Eli's house with the rise of the prophet Samuel. As God prepares to bring his judgment upon wicked leaders, the Lord is already at work raising a faithful leader. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 18 of chapter two. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make it for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she has asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. The narrator is just reminding us, don't forget Samuel. It looks bleak right now. The Lord's preparing a leader. Elkanah and his family made the same annual trip to Shiloh every year, just like we were told. 
Hannah had dedicated her son to the service of the Lord. And the yearly trip, I'm sure, as a mother who hadn't seen her baby boy in a year, looked forward to that trip with incredible excitement to see her baby boy, to see how big he had gotten. No Facebook pictures to see, right? No, no FaceTime chats. This was the time she got to see him. And so she would bring a little gift for him. She would bring a little robe. And of course, each year, as the boy grew, the robe got a little bit bigger and bigger and bigger. The Lord is raising up a new man of the cloth amidst the corruption of Eli's family. Hannah brings him this linen ephod, the, the garment of the priests. And Samuel continues to grow faithfully, we are told, into Israel's future leader. And in the midst of such corruption, corruption which Samuel witnessed in the tabernacle as he served there, the Lord is bringing about the blessing of a faithful leader. Hannah prayed earlier, the baron had born seven. And we see the Lord has now blessed Hannah with three sons and two daughters, as we're told. The Lord's blessing is coming to Israel. And we're told that the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. And this is important as we follow the, the narrative of this text this morning. God's solution to corrupt leadership is to raise up his own leader. But before we see him do that, we pivot back to Eli in his house. And we hear the old man Eli rebuke his sons. Let's pick up in verse 22. Now, Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. At this point, Eli is very old. So much so that it seems to be the case that he's not actively working in the tabernacle anymore at the ministry at Shiloh in terms of its daily operation. But he hears reports of what's taking place, of his son's behavior. All of Israel's talking about it. It's the scandal of the community. And while Eli doesn't seem to be actively participating in his son's behavior, Eli has benefited from his son's behavior. We're told in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 18, that Eli was not only old, he was heavy. He seemed to share in his son's gluttony and his proclivity to overindulgence. Eli sinned by enjoying the fruits of his son's corruptions. But Eli, concerned with these reports, attempts to rebuke his sons and try to rein in their misbehavior Eli rebukes them for their evil dealings, and he reminds them of the severity of the Lord's judgment. He says, if a, someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? So Eli points to the reality, the, the, the danger here, that the priests are the mediators between God and man. If the priests sin directly against the Lord, who's going to mediate for the priests? Who is the mediator for the mediators? Sinning against God is no light matter. Eli tries to warn them of that. But as we read these words, and maybe you thought the same as we just read them, Eli's rebuke is weak, isn't it? It's weak. He, does, he doesn't rebuke them with the sort of righteous indignation that he had for Hannah when he mistook her as a woman of Belial, as a drunken woman at the temple. 
He merely slaps them on the wrist, doesn't he? He doesn't give this bold call for repentance. He doesn't remove them from their duties effective immediately. All we read is the ineffective pleading of a father who has already given himself to nepotism. The sons do not listen to the father. That's a recurring theme in 1st and 2nd Samuel, by the way. Samuel will be unable to keep his own sons in check. David will fail later on in dealing with problems among his own sons. And so the text tells us that Eli's sons did not listen to their father's rebuke because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. The sons of Eli parallel that of Pharaoh in Egypt, who also did not know the Lord, we're told in the text. The hardening of their heart was their own doing, even as it was the doing of the Lord's. The judgment of God had already come upon these two men, coming against Eli and his sons. But before the decision is declared, before the Lord gives his judgment, verse 26, yet again, reminds us that the Lord is at work behind the scenes to raise up that replacement leader. Look at verse 26. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. Does that language sound familiar to you? If you're familiar with the gospel of Luke, perhaps it does. Luke alludes to this verse when he describes Jesus growing up as a child. Luke 2.52 says, And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You see, in the midst of corrupted leadership, the Lord prepares the way for a future leader that he will raise, who will honor him, who will obey his word, and who will be a blessing to his people. But for now, the judgment of God has come. We're told that an unknown and nameless man is the mouthpiece for God's judgment against Eli's house. Let's, let's keep reading in verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this 
that shall come upon your son, and this, and this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread. The Lord rejects Eli's house. His judgment is coming. It's heralded here. The priesthood was intended to be continued through the line, the family line of Aaron and his sons. And should Eli and his household have continued to be faithful to that task, the Lord would bless the house of Eli forever. But, but Eli's house has not upheld their responsibilities. They've made a mockery of those responsibilities. And in verse 29, the Lord's question is a sharp rebuke. Why then did you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? They've, they completely reversed it. Eli is favoring his sons. He's favoring his own belly over faithfulness and obedience to God. So God rejects him. And by his failure to intervene, by his failure to do something about the leadership abuses and scandals, Eli is complicit in the son, sins of his sons. And he fattened himself by their thievery. And now the judgment of God is coming. The Lord tells Eli, those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. The Lord tells Eli exactly what will happen. Your whole family will be cut off except one. And I'm only sparing him so that he can publicly weep and grieve his eyes out. This is ultimately fulfilled in Abiathar when Solomon banishes him in 1 Kings chapter 2. And we are told in 1 Kings chapter 2 that at that moment, the Lord's word was fulfilled against the house of Eli. But Hophni and Phinehas, as we'll soon see, will die on the same day. And the Lord will raise up for himself a faithful priest. The faithful priest described here most likely refers to Zadok, who is a de descendant of Aaron, who will serve as priest during the reign of David. And since the Lord is cutting off Eli's house, what the Lord does is he climbs back up the family tree of Aaron and finds another branch to work from. Samuel was of the tribe of Levi, yes, but he was not a descendant of Aaron, so he could not function in the high priestly role. Samuel's role will be that of prophet, as we will see, soon see, even though he at times functions in a semi-priestly role. But the Lord will bring reversal upon the house of Eli. This is just as Hannah anticipated in her prayer at the start of chapter two. Those who were full will hire themselves out for bread. And so does the Lord conclude his judgment upon the house of Eli by saying that's exactly what is going to happen. Those who are left in Eli's house will come to the faithful priest and they'll implore him for some sort of work that they might have just a morsel of bread. That the house of Eli, who made themselves fat by their corruption, will become beggars before a new and faithful priest. So what does God do with corrupted leaders? He judges them and he removes them. He judges them and he removes them. Israel's situation is unique, isn't it? 
because the people of Israel were powerless to change the lineage of the priesthood. The sons of Eli were not elected by popular vote. They were stuck with them until the Lord did something about it. There was no king to remove the high priest. The Lord hadn't done it yet. Eli wasn't elected by a democratic vote. No, the Lord put Eli's house in place and only the Lord could remove him. And that's precisely what the Lord will do. But what should we do? What should we do as a church with corrupt leaders? Do we simply tolerate and perpetuate the corruption until God happens to make them drop dead? No. In the church, God has given his church the authority to exercise his judgment. When the church assembles together, we are given the keys of the kingdom. We bind and we loose under the authority of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 16 and 18, Jesus gives his assembly the authority not only to remove members, but by implication, remove leaders. Corrupt leaders come under the judgment of God mediated through his church. That's the way it goes. Church leaders are not exempt from church discipline. Paul gives us the explicit call to do this in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. He tells the church, is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Peter writes in 1 Peter 4 verse 17, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. When leadership is corrupt, it is up to the members of the church who have the God-given authority and responsibility to remove corrupt leaders and to bring them under the discipline of the congregation. The congregation must show love for those corrupt leaders. How? By applauding them? No. But by stripping their influence, by stripping them of their authority, and call them to repentance. Should the fallen leader be humble, and we pray that they would, humble and and willing to submit to the church's ministry and care and come under that discipline, then the church has a responsibility to care for them and nurture them and to disciple them as we would any other member. But sadly, and this is the great crisis of the church in the day, many congregations employ an unbiblical form of church government that allows corrupt leaders to hide and flourish in secrecy. The congregation, for many churches, plays no role whatsoever in the church's governance. And removing a corrupt leader in those sorts of churches is incredibly difficult, if not nigh impossible. And in those cases, what should faithful Christians do? The only judgment a Christian can give in that sense is to leave and go to a different church and find a healthy one. But the good gift of a biblical model of congregationalism that we talk about in our membership class this, this is what God has given his church, and it's, the church has given the freedom to exercise its biblical responsibility to remove corrupt leaders. Of course, we pray that it's never needed, but we were quite intentional when we planted this church that our governing documents at Redemption Church give a clear pathway for the members of this church to remove any, if not all, of the leaders of this congregation. And should such action ever be necessary at Redemption Church, and we pray that it never will, I pray that you will act faithfully as the Lord did with the house of Eli, that you, church, 
You, the members of Redemption Church, will be the instrument of God's judgment and justice, and that you will remove corrupted leadership, and that you will bring such leaders under the loving discipline of this body. That's what you're called to do. And so the Lord will remove corrupt leadership. And the church who represents God's kingdom and authority on this earth must do the same. But the Lord is faithful. And though he judges false teachers, he graciously blesses his people with faithful leaders. Amidst the dark evil of Eli's household, God was preparing a faithful leader to bless his people. The Lord planted this leader in the womb of Hannah, and now the boy has grown. He's sprouted, we're told throughout the text, into maturity, and he comes now into the fullness of his prophetic call. Barren Israel will receive the fruit of God's word through the fruit of Hannah's barren womb. The narrator sets the scene. Let's start in chapter 3, verse 1. Now the boy, Samuel, was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Samuel was ministering with his mentor, Eli. And in those days, we're told, quite intentionally, the word of the Lord was rare. After the time of Moses and Joshua, God's words were few and far between. The the corrupted leadership, the cycle of the judges, rebellious Israel, all of that led to a dearth, a famine of God's words for his people. Eli was not only very old, he was not only very fat, but he was also very blind. And his physical blindness mirrors his spiritual blindness, his inability to know God's law and his inability to hear God's words. But there is hope, not with some strange detail the narrator includes, but very intentionally foreshadowed by the lamp of God still shining in the tabernacle. Though the priest of God is blind, the light of God's presence and blessing has not yet gone out for his people. And there Samuel lay down, in the temple of the Lord, where the ark of God was. And on this occasion, the Lord calls his leader. He calls his prophet, He calls out to Samuel. Let's keep reading. Then the Lord called Samuel and he said, here I am. And ran to Eli and said, here I am for you have called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down and the Lord called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son. Lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time. And he arose and went to Eli and said, here I am for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore, Eli said to Samuel, go lie down. And if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The scene is quite humorous, isn't it? Samuel knows the Lord far better than the sons of Eli did, but he had not yet heard the voice of the Lord. He hasn't yet known the Lord as a prophet. He did not know God like he will soon know God. So Samuel is confused. He hears his name. The Lord's calling out to him. And he goes to Eli. Eli sends him back to lay down. Happens a second time. Eli, probably a little bit annoyed. 
If you've been waking up by children before in the middle of the night, you know how irritating that can be, right? Sends him back. But then after the third time, Eli begins to realize what's happening here. It is the Lord who is calling out to Samuel. And so he gives Samuel some good advice. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. That's what he is to say. And though Eli's house is soon to be rejected, Eli is a complicated figure, if you haven't figured it out yet in our text. Eli gives Samuel instructions, good instructions, that he himself failed to follow. But Eli rightly shares the response, the response that every faithful leader must have to the Lord. Speak, Lord, for your servant hears. The key mark of a faithful leader is a humble man who listens to the word of God. Faithful leaders are those who hear God's word and submit to God's word. So the next time he hears his name, he responds just as Eli instructed him to do. And the young boy, Hannah's son, receives his very first prophecy. What exciting to preach his first sermon, to give his first word from the Lord. God's going to give it to him. After a famine of God's words in the nations, the word of the Lord is now returning to Israel through the mouth of Samuel the prophet and bring blessing. Let's hear what this good news is that the Lord has to share. Let's keep reading. And the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak for your servant hears. And then the Lord said to Samuel, behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day, I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. Therefore, I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel's first sermon. His first prophetic assignment is to go to his mentor and announce God's judgment upon him. We are left with a bit of an uneasy point of tension in the narrative at this point. Would Samuel deliver the word of the Lord faithfully? Would he obey it? Or will he make the mistake of Eli's other sons? Would he repeat the error of Hophni and Phinehas and show disregard for the word of the Lord? Let's find out what happens. Verse 15, Samuel lay until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of the Lord. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, here I am. And Eli said, what was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more also if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. It's interesting to see Samuel's initial hesitancy a bit. The young boy given his first assignment by the Lord to deliver his word. And now he's to go to his mentor, the one who taught him how to respond to the Lord properly in the first place. And now he's got to give this message of judgment and death upon him and his household. And so Samuel was afraid that Eli would be angry. That's such a word. But to Eli's credit, out of all his miserable failures, to Eli's credit, he wants to hear exactly what God told Samuel, no matter what. Don't hide anything from me, he says. And so Samuel delivers the word of the Lord to his mentor, a message of judgment upon him and punishment. And Eli humbly receives God's verdict. 
It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And at this point, now we see the leadership crossover happening in 1 Samuel. Eli's leadership will soon end, and God's leader, Samuel, is now commissioned for his prophetic work. What is the difference? What is the difference between a corrupt leader and a faithful leader? A corrupt leader disregards God's word. A faithful leader proclaims God's word. And so we see this new era begin in the history of Israel through the ministry of Samuel. Here is a prophet who is like Moses, who will come and bring God's word to God's people. And as he begins to minister God's word to the whole nation, we begin to see the whole nation talk of it. Look at verse 19. And Samuel grew and the Lord was with him and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Beersheba knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. You see, the Lord deals with corrupt leaders through his judgment, but he blesses his people through faithful leaders who live consistently with and proclaim his word. When God's people lack a faithful leader, God is faithful to bring a leader that the people need. The fall of Eli's house and Samuel's rise, it parallels with what God has done in the coming of Jesus, hasn't it? The fall of Eli's house mirrors this pattern. Ezekiel prophesies in Ezekiel chapter 34 that the shepherds of Israel who devour the sheep instead of caring for the sheep, the Lord will reject them, he says. I'll reject those leaders of Israel. And let me tell you what I'm going to do, the Lord says. I stand against those corrupt shepherds and I will come and shepherd the people myself. I will be the leader that my people need. Godly leaders are an incredible gift. As elders of Redemption Church, we strive to the best of our ability to be faithful to God's word, to instruct you with the scriptures, to encourage you with the scriptures, to correct you in the scriptures, to love you in accordance with the scriptures. And we pray that you, church, have found us to be faithful men of the word and that you would indeed honor us as gifts from Christ as the scripture calls you to do. We strive to be faithful under shepherds of Christ, but it is Christ church who is the chief shepherd. We ask that you might pray for us in this task, that the Lord would protect us from sin, that he would encourage us, that we would not defile ourselves like Hophni and Phinehas, and that you would encourage us in that task, that you would follow us as we're faithful, and that above all, you might pray regularly for us. And we're so thankful that you do. But you see, every leader though, is a faulty leader, aren't they? Every leader has differing degrees of failure. Even the best leaders have a way of letting us down from time to time. Samuel won't be Israel's perfect leader. Spoiler alert. Neither will Saul. Certainly not. And not even David, the man after God's own heart, will be the perfect leader that God's people need. So our longing for a faithful leader will only be resolved when God himself comes to lead us in the person of Christ. The son of God becomes enfleshed. He dwells among us. And the son of God, Jesus, he comes rebuking the corrupted leadership of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who twist God's word for their own selfish gain. 
And so Jesus is the faithful leader who comes proclaiming the word of God. And all who heed his words, all who hear them, all who believe in his name will receive the blessing of eternal life. Because it's not just leaders who go corrupt, is it? We all go corrupt. We all have hearts corrupted and tainted by our sin. We have all strayed into sin. Perhaps some of us into very great sin, just like Eli's sons. We all need a leader who can rescue us from ourselves, who can bring us God's word. Leaders who can give us new hearts that rejoice in the blessings that come from hearing and obeying God's word. God himself has come to shepherd us. The eternal word has come and he lays down his life for us to save us out of our corruption, out of our evil, out of our wickedness. We are all children of Belial, but it is Jesus who makes us sons and daughters of God. So in your sin this morning, let me invite you to turn from your sin, hear the rebuke from God's word, turn from it and put your faith in God's leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he can cleanse you and only he can save you. But our text reminds us of the judgment to come for corrupt leaders, but it also reminds us of God's gift of faithful leaders. If you've been the recipient of the blessing that comes from faithful leaders who obey God's word, praise the Lord this morning for his blessing upon you. And if you felt the pain of corrupted leaders, take comfort in knowing that God will bring his judgment and he will bring his justice. The Lord sees and knows. The father has indeed helped us. Even when our leaders fail us, the father has provided the leader and savior that we all need in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's to him, the chief shepherd, the chief leader, that we give all honor, praise, and glory. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come asking for your help. We confess that like Hophni and Phinehas, we find ourselves so frequently as children of Belial, children of worthless wickedness. Father, we confess that we are sinners, that we have all gone astray. And Lord, that we need a faithful leader who can shepherd us, who can care for us, who can rescue us, who can save us. And Lord, we are so grateful that you have given us that leader in yourself, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for all who are here this morning that their ultimate hope and confidence would not be in any human leader, any elder, any person in this church, but that it would ultimately be in Christ. He would be our confidence. He would be our trust. He would be the one we look to for guidance and for wisdom. But Lord, we do pray, Lord, for the church today in our country and indeed all around the world. Father, we pray, Lord, that you would help your church to deal wisely, but clearly and boldly with corrupted leaders. Lord, we pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to exercise your judgment in our congregations as you have pronounced judgment. And so, Father, we do pray, Lord, that you would help us to deal rightly with corrupted leaders. But Lord, we do thank you for the blessing you give of faithful leaders for your church. Lord, we thank you that you provide the leader that we need, even amidst those who are corrupted and evil and wicked. So, Lord, we look to Jesus for help and for guidance. And Lord, we praise you for the provision of Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.